You guys just saw that? Your eyes were closed while we prayed. Great. Hey, does anybody up here need uh, study sheets? Who needs study sheets? You'll need them if you don't have them. I'll give them to you right now. No? Okay. Hey, um, Kent mentioned, you know, you qualify everything now. Um, Because we're aware, um, for some of us we had great dads, for some of us we didn't. Some of us are great dads, some of us not so much. So you sort of try and qualify that while we're celebrating dads on one hand, you want to say, and there may be need for grace there, either past, present, or future too. I think I've told you this before, but in many ways I had a great dad, but I was one of 11, and so personal time with dad was sort of few and far between, and but he was, a, he was certainly the guiding influence in the home I grew up in. And uh, like my brothers, uh, there came a time in which I saw myself doing something. And, uh, and I said, not out loud, but I said, I'm just like my dad. That was a lament. It was not one of those positive, shining moments otherwise. <clears throat> I'm careful when I say this, but I know God's spoken to me directly a couple times, and this was one of them. And not audibly, but I knew God spoke. And he said, Mike, I loved your dad. I was like, oh, well, that's a, that's a fresh take. So being a dad's a great thing. It's certainly just the funnest thing I've ever done. And I hope it is for you guys too. So with Father's Day in mind, I love the way it says this. Uh, let's go ask it a question. Dad, go, go ask it a question. How do you guys like this one? Hopefully I'm good to go with these this morning. You guys seen this one? My dad would chuck more wood than your dad would chuck, even if your dad could chuck wood, which I doubt. <laughs> that was good. Now, you know, maybe kids, for you guys, now, I'm serious when I say this. So sometimes you look at your dads and you wonder, what is going on? You know, I can't understand my dad. He frustrates me, whatever. And you know, for some of us, it's, it's because we're from another planet. So, if you have trouble understanding Dad, just cut him some slack. Sometimes we're from another planet. Yep. Okay. With all that. Yeah, happy Father's Day, guys. Hey, Ken already mentioned something that I want to start with. And it's just related to um, to taking in the Scripture day by day or week by week. Uh, several of you told me after last Sunday's message, you said, man, that message was great. It was so good, and I was so encouraged, and God spoke to me. And on one hand, I'm thinking, I'm so glad to hear that, and I'm thrilled. But on the other hand, I hold that very lightly uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, you know that eventually, uh, God can speak through a donkey. So if God speaks through one of us, that may not be high praise, right? Speak through a donkey, he could speak through us. And that really at the end of the day, all kidding aside, so God promises that He'll bless His Word and He'll do so by His Spirit. He'll make it real to us. He'll convict us. He'll help us see things. So you guys might say, uh, man, last week's message was really good, so encouraging. But you know probably for that one, there will be several that you won't say that about. Maybe you tune in, maybe you tune out, but you don't go away with that same sense. So maybe for every one you say, man, that was so helpful, you might have five or six or ten or twelve that you just say, yeah, that was, that was fine. What we want to do when we're hearing Scripture, and, and that really is an act of worship. Kent was focusing on listening to God's Word is an act of worship. We want to hear what God has said 
and apply that to ourselves. So we really want to be intentional about simply bringing a humble spirit and a contrite heart and saying, Lord, what do you have in this for me today? That's what we want to do. And then we trust God to speak to us the things He means for us. I love the letters in Revelation 2 and 3. On one hand, it says, let him who has an ear to hear, hear. That there's, some, there's a message for you that won't be for someone else today or last week or next week. What does God have to say to us? That's what we want to latch on to. Last week's message was pretty easy to deliver and pretty easy to hear because there were a number of snippets. There were short topics that we talked about, said what that looks like, and then we said and this is what some of the points of application might look like. Today's message is not at all like that. It requires a lot more patience and diligence on us. We've got one passage and we're developing a theme from one passage and it's, uh, it doesn't flow, frankly, as neatly or as easily. So, so it's harder to sort of put in context and then it's a little bit more difficult too to make points of application. But that is where we want to end up. So I hope you'll, I hope you'll work towards that end with me this morning. So we are in Deuteronomy this morning. We'll be there in just a second. And if you remember, if you've been here before, Deuteronomy is Moses' swan song. He writes it just before he dies. God has told him, he's, there's no uncertainty. I'm winding down. When this thing's done and they cross, I'm done. My time on earth is, is over. So it's his last words to Israel. And, and he's saying, this is the end of the 40 years, he's looking back and saying, remember the lessons God has shown you all the way through. Remember, 14 times. So... It's the time to reflect. It's the time to stop, look back, so you're adequately prepared for what's going forward in the future. So we are in Deuteronomy 25 this morning. And this is from the ESV. And this is the sole passage. We'll look at others, but this is, this is the remember passage we want to look at this morning. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. So remember... You came out of Egypt, that's 40 years ago. So a lot of the people hearing this, they weren't there 40 years ago. You remember, there's just a couple guys that started the Exodus that go into the land of promise. The rest of them didn't start in the Exodus. So he's telling some people, remember a thing that didn't even happen. You weren't alive, you weren't born, you weren't there. But remember it anyway, you've heard the stories. And here Amalek is not a person. It's a personal name for a nation. So these are the Amalekites. So these are the descendants of Amalek. My son-in-law's calling me in case you wanted to know. A little... <laughs> Last week, my YouTube was playing when I'm up here thinking, who's got their radio on? It's me. So I'll, I'll catch up with Alan later. Oh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah, anyway, so... Remember, Amalek, okay, what he did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. So this is the Exodus. Well, what did he do? Well, he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and he cut off your tail. Your tail's not an insult here. It's those who were trailing behind. Those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Think of this for just a minute. The way God's describing this. So the Amalekites, no sooner does Israel come out in the Exodus, than the Amalekites come and they attack them. And remember at this point, it's not later in the journeys through the wilderness when Israel's organized and tribes are going out together and they wait for each other in order. It's not that yet. It's just probably extended families and neighbors who've gone out that same day of the Exodus. 
So you know who's at the back of this, right? The weakest, the youngest, the, the, the most vulnerable. So here Israel comes out, and these, these folks that Israel hasn't done anything to, they come out and they strike at the most vulnerable people who've just left the land of Egypt. They've just left the slavery of Egypt and Pharaoh, and they get hammered by Amalek. And he also says, this is interesting, he didn't fear God. So Amalek is harming God's people. We'll develop this in just a minute. But he also says he didn't fear God. And put this in context. Everyone around Egypt knew what God just did to Egypt. To Pharaoh, to the army, and the nation. God hammered them. And God let all the world know that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the God. And He did so by destroying the most mighty nation and army on earth. Well, the Amalekites lived just out of Egypt. And yet it says they had no fear of God. They have no spiritual discernment. They have no spiritual wisdom to recognize what they should. And if you remember the story later when they go into Jericho, the prostitute there on the wall says, Rahab, we've heard. And everybody's terrified. These guys don't have enough sense to be afraid of the God who's just destroyed Egypt. So they're, they're hammering the most vulnerable among Israel and they don't have enough sense to fear God. Therefore, the Lord your God has given uh, you rest from all your... Or, excuse me. Therefore, when the Lord your God... You're going to go in, take the land. When your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So remember what Amalek did. Don't forget what Amalek did. Blot out the memory of Amalek on the earth. Does that sound severe? Pretty severe. Pretty severe. Um, let me go forward just a little bit here. If we say, we'll get to some of the whys here. Why is this severe? And, and on one hand, we want to make this personal. In Exodus 4.22, God called Israel, the nation, His Son. And that's in part why He struck the firstborn of the nation of Egypt. It was Egypt versus God. It was their sons versus God's son. So in Exodus 4, God called Israel His Son. And then later, in the book of Hosea, and this is so lovely, Hosea 11.1, God looks back from Hosea's time, hundreds of years later, and says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now, you probably recognize that from Matthew's Gospel because Matthew applies that to Jesus. But in context, that's what God was saying about Israel coming out of the land. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. In other words, God is making this attack personal because it's against His Son. God loved Israel and someone tried to harm Israel. Um, if you think of the, uh, think of the Exodus graphically, uh, as a as a childbirth, so think of this for just a second. So God takes Jacob and his descendants like a seed, if you will, and He plants them in the womb of Egypt. And like a baby in the womb, Israel grows for four hundred years. And then, do you remember how they're they're out? Um, God says that Egypt will expel you. And then, do you remember what they come through? They come through the water. Does this sound like a birth? Because it's supposed to. 
God's Son is born, they're expelled out of the womb of Egypt. So graphically, we're supposed to see this is like a childbirth. And so that means before Israel can crawl, this nation is coming up to kill them and wipe them out. And it's God's child. It's His Son. It's very personal. Have you guys ever seen whatever nature channel when the baby sea tortoises come out of the sand? Have you guys seen this? You know, the, the mothers bury the eggs really deep and they, they incubate in the warm sand and then they come out. And when they come out, it's kind of crazy, right? They, they're little, they're tiny, they're really cute. But you know what happens? So when one predator bird or seagull or whatever sees them start, they know what's coming. And so one or two birds becomes flocks and hundreds and hundreds of birds. And they're coming down on these poor little sea tortoises, right? And on one hand, you say, the birds have got to eat. I get that. Well, on the other, if you were the mother of that little sea tortoise, how would you feel seeing these birds come down and picking up your children and eating them or tearing them apart? It's kind of hard to see, even for me. You know, I, I don't, it's the way things are. But Well, God has that kind of thought towards this attack by Amalek on His people. His son, His newborn son, attacked by someone trying to wipe them out. By the way, does that sound familiar? A newborn son... Somebody comes in and tries to wipe out that newborn son before they can be established. That sounds familiar to me, doesn't it to you too? And matter of fact, this is getting way ahead. You know, so God, we're going to hear about what God says about Amalek this morning. You know, Herod the Great is the guy that tried to kill a son, right? A recently born son, a son of promise. Herod tried to kill him. Do you guys know how Herod died? Do you guys know the story about Herod's death? You know, he, he was one shrewd guy. He was a can-do guy. He was an amazing person in numbers of ways. He built, when we think of the temple Jesus was at, he built that. The second temple, Herod had entirely redone the whole thing. He's the guy that built Caesarea. He built Masada and another place. He was a builder all his life. But you know, he was crazy too. He killed his wives. He killed his sons. You know, he was so paranoid. But Herod died, and I think they've got the diagnosis Herod died literally being eaten by worms from apparently a kidney infection that went south, uh, scratching his groin, and worms were literally eating him. That's the guy that tried to wipe out God's son right after he was born. Well, God has a similar, if you will, attitude towards Amalek. And I know this is so different for us. So God says, remember what Amalek did. Don't forget what Amalek did. We'll look at Exodus here in just a second. But as Christians, you and I know God tells us, forgive your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. So we've got a text that says, essentially, God says, I'm going to wipe them out and I want you to wipe them out. And these are people. These are people. And as Christians, it's like, how, what, do we, what do we make of this? That's part of the difficulty of this passage in the message. So, so hang in there. We'll, we'll get to application a little bit. If you look in your Bibles, I don't have this overhead, if you look in your Bibles at Exodus 17, that's the story in the narrative about when it happened. So as they came out, Exodus 17, basically it just says Amalek uh, attacked Israel. This is the story where Moses has to hold his hands up all day. If his hands are up, Israel wins and they eventually defeat the Amalekites. But listen to the summary of that. This is God speaking. Exodus 17, 14, through 16, it says, The Lord said to Moses, and it's the same thought as Deuteronomy, 
Write this as a memorial. Write this to remember. Write this so you don't forget in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Now why Joshua? Because he's the guy that leads Israel into the land of promise. He's the guy that's going to carry out God's will against the Amalekites. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. It's a little ambiguous, not quite sure what that means, but this is clear. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God will always be at war with Amalek. They're not on his good side, they're on his bad side, and that's not going to change. So Amalek attacked the stragglers, Israel battled them and won, and God cursed Amalek and called for Israel to wipe them out. Uh, and we're going to get to some whys here. If you look at this map, and um, everybody's got a little different, but if you look at this map, so you guys know everything's conjecture on these, right? I mean, besides the shape of the geography, we're guessing at this stuff, right? So this shows the path of the Exodus coming down here. We don't know. We think. Maybe, maybe not. This shows Mount Sinai. Actually, Mount Sinai may be over here in Saudi Arabia. We're not entirely sure. But the land of promise goes from north of here down to what's called the River of Egypt, which would be about here, and to the Jordan River Valley into the Mediterranean. Amalek is right in here. They're on the southwest area of the land of promise. And Israel's coming here. So somewhere in here, apparently, that's when Amalek comes out and attacks, sorry, attacks Israel. So what's behind? Why has he got it particularly out for Amalek? And there's a couple of reasons. One is this. God promised Abraham what he called the land of promise, right? It was a promise and it was a covenant. And in Genesis 15, it's an unconditional one-way covenant in which God tells Abraham, I'm going to give your children, your descendants, I'm going to give them this land, the land of promise. We still say the Euphrates down to Egypt, Mediterranean to the Jordan Valley. I'm going to give it to your descendants. That's God's sovereign will. He can do what He wants. The earth is His and everything in it. So we're good with that. But He also tells Abraham this. This is Genesis 15, 16. It's going to be 400 years before they get it. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to them, but not right now. 400 years before they get it. And he says this, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What you're going to see in this passage is God, God says, no holds barred. I want you to wipe this people group out, which sounds really harsh. But the flip side is, he says, but by the way, right now, I'm going to give them 400 more years. He doesn't have to. But he's going to. You think of the passage out of 2 Peter 3 where Peter says God's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Well, here, Paul says in Acts, he says that the seasons and the harvest, the wine, the food that God gives, it gladdens men's hearts. That was one of God's testimonies to men about Himself. You know, Romans 1 tells us that God reveals Himself through creation. So God says, I'm going to give your descendants the land, but it'll be 400 years before I do so because their sin, their iniquity is not yet full. God is giving this nation 400 years of at least what we would call common grace. Life and birth and marriage and children and seasons of harvest, all good. But He says, this is what I know. In 400 years of My grace, all that's going to happen to this people group is they're going to fill up a cup of iniquity. Their wickedness and their sin is simply going to get to the point where I say, enough, no more. And I'm going to cut them off in judgment. Now, this is not the first time God has done this, right? 
If you go back to Genesis 6, what does God do? He drowns everyone on the earth except Noah and his family. Is that okay for God to do? It's okay for God to do. He's the God of life. He's our God. He can do as He pleases. So God has said, I'm going to give them these, these hundreds of years, but I know it's going to happen. They're just going to fill up their iniquity, and I'm going to say no more. We're done. Um, Israel had a mission, and it's twofold. And, and hang, hang in there with me, and we'll, we'll um, try and keep this as uh, graspable, memorable as we can. But two things, two mission elements. Um, Numbers 33, this is on your study sheet, the verses, and we're not going to cover a bunch of verses that are on your study sheet today. But one of the things God said about His people is, He said, I'm holy and you've got to be holy. You've got to be like Me. And that means you've got to be separate from not only the people, but the kinds of sins that the people of the land you're going to go in, the kind of sins they practice. And He says, this is the problem. And by the way, God said you've got to drive out, drive out, or wipe out all the peoples of the land of promise. You can't let any of them stay in that land, in that limited geography. He says, if you don't, this is what will happen. If you let them remain, those people in the land of promise will be like barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. Now imagine a fish hook, and then imagine poking it into your eye. Would that feel good? A fish hook in my eye would not be a good thing. Take some of those long thorns on the locust trees and poke one right through your side. Would that be a good thing to do? That would not be a good thing. God's using that as a comparison to say, guys, if you let them live in the land of promise, this is the kind of pain they're going to bring your way. You don't want this. You won't be holy. You'll become like them. You guys, dads and moms, we're in here. We've got lots of little kids. You know, our girls would occasionally develop friendship with kids we weren't sure about. And so we always told them this. Uh, the thing we want to know is who's changing who? Are your friends becoming like you? You've got Christian parents. You've got the Scriptures. You've, you've been privileged. So if that's happening, we're good. But we said, but if you're becoming like them, that's not okay. God says to Israel, you'll become like them. If you leave them in the land, you'll become like them. You'll become idolaters. You'll isolate yourself from me. And also in Deuteronomy 4, he said this, he said, if you'll keep my commands, my law, my covenant with you guys, if you'll keep it, this is what the nations around you will say. They'll say, can you believe how good Israel's God is? And how great the laws and the justice and the equity in that land is. Can you believe it? Because God always meant for Israel to be like the city on a hill. A light to the nations. That was always God's will. But He said to accomplish that, you drive the pagans and their idolatry and their wicked sins out. I plant you, this is Isaiah 5, as a holy vine. You're mine. You're right where I want you. And if you live under my covenant, the nations around you will come to the light of Christ, ultimately. The light that will be represented by you in covenant with me. That's what God wanted. That was their mission. God says, if the Amalekites or the other Canaanites of the land are there, this will not happen. Your mission will be blown. Now, one of the things about the Amalekites is this. Guys, they're mentioned 50 times in the Old Testament. 50 times. There's not one positive reference. And there's a reason for that. There's a neutral reference when we simply hear this. We know that Amalek, the originator of the tribe of the people group, Amalek is a descendant of Esau. That's the single neutral passage about him. We know he's from Esau. By the way, do you know who Herod came from? Esau. 
Herod was an Edomite. But he married into the high priestly family. That's how he could justify being a king in Israel. So the Amalek, uh, the Amalekites, uh, we know where they live from the map. Listen to just quick reference of some of the things that they did. Numbers 14, with the Canaanites, they defeat Israel. In Judges, Israel is at warfare with the Amalekites. That's the description there. In 2 Samuel 1, it was an Amalekite who at least said he slew King Saul and brought David his crown and his armband to show Saul was dead, David could be king. This guy thought David would reward him. He did not reward him. The last reference is in Psalm 83.7, Amalek's one of the nations that opposes God's chosen people. Numbers 24, Balaam prophesies Amalek's destruction. You remember, he's supposed to curse Israel, but he curses the nations and blesses Israel. And in 1 Samuel 15, and this is an important one, pretty well-known story, God commands King Saul to wipe out Amalek entirely. And as we'll see, of course, that did not happen. So Amalek's got to go because God's given them time to repent. He's now giving their land to His chosen people. Israel's got to rid the land of the pagan influence so they can become the city on a hill God always meant them to be. That's where we're at. God's plan and God's mission. So for you and I, you say, okay, what do you do with a passage like this? So there's no people group you and I are supposed to go and wipe out, right? I hope we're good on this. Okay, no... So we want to change the point of application, but we want to take to heart the principles. And I think this is what God wants for us, by the way. I don't think this is a stretch. All Scripture is not written to us, but it's written for us. We want to take the principles we see in, in situations that otherwise don't apply to us, but we want to take the principles and say, this is something God means for me to know and understand. So if it's not people today like Amalek, what is it that you and I face like Amalek that's ruthless, merciless, whatever interaction we have with them, it's always negative. They're out to harm us. If we go along with them, we're going to be cursed. What kinds of things, what kind of forces, what kind of entities might we be talking about by way of application this morning? And you guys probably have a pretty good feel for this already. R.C. Sproul said, the great triad of enemies for Christian growth contain the world, the flesh, and the devil. And of course, that's not original to Sproul. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now guys, don't check out now because we're talking about religious terms, okay? And the sleep comes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll just talk about this enough so that if we, we're not real clear, we'll gain a little bit of clarity. I won't develop this long. But when we say the world, we're not talking about the physical world. We're not talking about stuff. We're talking about a system. And we're talking about ultimately a system that the God of this world runs. Satan is still called the God of this world. And the God of this world rules over His kingdom. And everything He does and everything in His kingdom is against God and against God's people ultimately and against God's mission for God's people. So it's not that God's opposed to people, but they're part of a system, a kingdom. And everything in that kingdom is opposed to Jesus. And it's opposed to what Jesus is doing in the world today. So if you think about things like fashion, retail, film and music, TV and movies, radio and internet, all the arenas of which, in which life occurs. Sports, athletics, you name it. It's not that any of those things are inherently evil or deficient in and of themselves. It's just that the way they get used by Satan in his kingdom ends up being oppositional to God and God's people and God's mission. So that's the world. 
And if you want to know what the world uh, encourages in us, and think of the world now as Amalek, okay? Because this is our application. This is where we're going. This is what John says in 1 John 2. All that's in the world. All that's in the world. What's in the world? How do you characterize it? He says this. ESV says desires, which is not a strong enough word. Um, strong desire. NASB says lust. That's a better interpretation here, I think. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. When you and I hang out with Amalek, i.e. the world, what does it promote in you and me? It promotes lust and pride. How do I know if I'm uh, interacting in the world around me in a redemptive way? I'm not buying into lust and pride. If I find that I'm struggling in my own heart, maybe more and more, with issues of lust or pride or other sins, it may be because I'm hanging out in the world. I'm hanging out with Amalek. I'm hanging out with God's enemy and God's enemy is affecting me. I'm becoming like God's enemy. God's enemy is not becoming like me. The world will never change. You can look at John 17, 14 later on that, by the way. Uh, The next thing is our flesh. It's hard for people to realize this, right? Um, Our flesh is just our sinful self. So when you and I are born, when we're conceived... Uh, parents conceive little sinners. Sinners conceive sinners. That's not that God doesn't love us. It's not that we don't love our kids, right? But we're born sinful. We're born alienated from God and God's life. So our flesh is that element of us that's original to us. And guys, there's no good thing in our flesh. Paul's quite clear about this in Romans 7 and 8. He says, good does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful self in that thing that I was born with. And what that means is every motive you have, every word you speak, every action you do, everything you refrain from, apart from Christ, apart from a new creation, is tainted by sin. There's no way around it. Because sin or sin. Everything we do is coming out of a deficient nature. That's our flesh. You can read about this in Romans 8. This reference is on your study sheet 7 and 8. So so you're battling the world, that's like Amalek. You're battling your flesh, that's like Amalek. And the flesh always wants to sin in one way or another. And you're battling the devil, and his name means slanderer. Satan means accuser. He's smart, right? He tempted Adam and Eve, our first parents. He's tempting you and me today. He's much smarter than we are. You, You and I will never outsmart Satan. It does not work that way. And he's out to harm us, and he's out to minimize Christian witness. He's out to harm the church. Absolutely. So, in the New Testament we hear, you don't have Amalek as a nation, but what you do have is you have the world, you have the flesh, and you have the devil. And just like Amalek, there's no good thing in them. And all interaction with them, on our part that's not redemptive and intentional, it's harmful to us. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they will take us down, just like Amalek was taking Israel down. If you say so what, um, this can look different ways at different times, But these are some of the ways that your mission and mine get hampered if we're not putting to death, as it were, Amalek in our life. So Israel was called to be holy, to be a city on a hill. You and I are called to be, as Christians, we are called to be holy because God our Father is holy. And a lot of times these words just have a religious ring. And that's not what we want. We want to make sure we know what God's talking about. God's holy. If you think God is okay, then being holy is okay. If, if God being holy is a good thing, then us being holy is a good thing. 
God being holy means he's absolutely unique, but also there's absolutely nothing deficient in him. For you and I to be holy, it means to be like God our Father. And think about this for just a minute. Do you guys find like me that you tend to live in Romans 7? So Romans 7 says, you know the good things I want to do? I'm not doing them. But the bad things I don't want to do, I find I'm doing them. What kind of lifestyle do you, do you call that? Do you like that lifestyle? Do you guys sin and then just feel miserable? I did it again. I can't believe I did it again. Will I ever get better? Will my life ever change? Do you? That's living in Romans 7 and 8, isn't it? That's sin. But you know what? When you aspire to holiness, the more holiness you have in your life, the less of that goes on. And you get more peace and you get more joy. The fruits of the Spirit become more normative. That's not a loss in any way. That's a gain. You and I are called to be holy like God our Father. In that sense, as we draw near to God, holiness becomes us and it's what allows us to know more of God, God our Father. God means for us to worship too. Kent talked about that again during announcements. Jesus said God the Father was looking for those who would worship Him in spirit and truth. God's looking around the world for those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. We're called to be worshipers as Christians. And again, this isn't a hard concept. Romans 12 says basically if you give God your body, you give Him everything you do. And then guess what? Everything you do is an act of worship. If you mean it to be. If you want it to be. Everything you do is an act of worship. We're called to be holy. We're called to be worshipers. And the third thing is we're called to make disciples. Called to make disciples. Sorry, I'm going the wrong way. That's us. And that's what we're called to do. This is from Matthew 28. And I, I want to mention something briefly just as part of this. Matthew 28, uh, last words of Jesus, they're recorded in that gospel. And he says, go and make disciples of all the earth, Right? Some people today harp on the go. They say you're disobedient if you don't go, if you're not a missionary to another land. I say that's just absolutely taking that out of context. Not everybody is called to go as a missionary. Absolutely not. Remember the context in which this is given? This is 11 guys that were called to live in one geographic location. All of blessing for God's people was in Israel. God is now telling them, by the way, that plan's over. So now you can't stay here. Now you've got to go. If you don't go, the world's not going to hear. There are still people, groups, where people in the West, people in the East need to go to make sure they hear the Gospel or get the Gospel, the Scriptures in their own native tongue. God may never call you to go. I thought I was going to be a missionary in East Europe. And it didn't happen. I was working towards it, but it didn't happen. God didn't want me to go. You don't necessarily have to go, but you are called. We are called as Christians to make disciples. To make disciples. So we're supposed to be doing that right here and right now. Make disciples of all the nations. Those are our missions. We've got mission just like Israel had mission. Be holy. Be a city on a hill. Our mission is be holy. Be worshipers. And spread the gospel and make disciples in places that haven't heard the gospel and in places that have. Make disciples. That's our mission. So... What happens if, like Israel, if we don't defeat our Amaleks, what happens? And what happened to Israel? Because they never did defeat. They never got rid of Amalek. What does that look like? Um, let, me, let me rehearse just a couple elements with you. So Israel's called to destroy Amalek, and specifically under King Saul. But he doesn't. So, remember that the things Moses wrote here, this was about 1440 B.C. 
So King David comes along. Do you remember the story? I think at the end of 1 Samuel, do you remember the story that David and his, his little army, they're gone from their city. And while they're gone, this group comes in, they kidnap their wives, they steal their children, they burn their town. Do you know who that was? That was the Amalekites. 400 years after God said, when you go in, get rid of them, it was the Amalekites that harmed David and his family. Probably no accident there either. So check this out. A thousand years after this passage, around 1400 B.C., in the 400s, a thousand years after Moses said, get rid of them, you know, there's another famous story about Amalek and Israel. Do you guys know what it is? It's the story of Esther. It's the story of Esther. So this is the deal. So you remember, the Jews are still living. Babylon was overcome by the Medo-Persian Empire. The Jews are still there. Some Jews are back in the land of promise. Others are not. They're in the Medo-Persian Empire. They're in modern-day Iran, basically. And there's this wicked guy. We won't go into the whole story, but there's this wicked guy, and he hates this Jew. And because he's one of the king's counselors, he's an important guy, he goes up to the king and he says, Hey, king, this is what I want to do. I hate this guy. He doesn't say that, but that's the deal. I hate this guy. And king... I. This is what I want. I want to go and I want to wipe out this guy's people all over, the, all over your kingdom, which basically means all the Jews. I want to wipe out this people. The king says, okay, fine, go do it. Do you know who that guy is? So we call him Haman, right? But who is Haman? There's Haman, by the way. <laughs> so you can buy that mask. No kidding, because you know the Jews have been celebrating Purim, Purim all these years in which they, they redo what was going on in the book of Esther. And they make Haman as ugly as they can. And when they do the skit, when Haman comes on, all the kids are supposed to boo and hiss when the bad guy comes on the scene. That's what they do. But who is Haman, guys? And this is who he is. Esther 3, verse 1. Haman is an Agagite. Who's Agag? He's the king of the Amalekites. Haman is a direct descendant of the king of the Amalekites. But he's, he's a counselor now to the Medo-Persian king, to Xerxes. Wow. Well, who's Mordecai? Because this isn't... Do you know? Who is he? Esther's, yes. He's related to Esther, right? I think some texts say uncle, some say cousin. But he's related to Esther, right? And he's been helping her, right? When she was in the king's chambers. So, but, but who is this guy Mordecai? So in, let's see, in Esther 2, verse 5, we find out that Mordecai, by the way, is a descendant of who? He's a descendant of King Saul. What do you have a thousand years after Moses wrote this passage? You have the descendant of King Saul waging battle with the descendant of King Agag. Of Israel fighting the Amalekites a thousand years after God said, get rid of them. That's interesting, isn't it? And this was not a little harm. Remember, Haman wants to wipe them out entirely and i say that to this point when you and i and guys i say this humbly i see my own sin all the time i see my capitulation to the world i see my you know the 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 world the flesh and the devil i see that in my own life but what happens when you and i are not ruthless in conquering amalek in our life that's what happens you simply sow the seeds of future temptation and destruction. When we don't take care of the world, the flesh, and the devil in our lives, when those things come up, we simply sow the seeds of future destruction and harm. That's what happens. 
It's interesting that in the Exodus account, God said this basically. He said, guys, I've wiped out Egypt. I've conquered Egypt. But then he says, now you go conquer Amalek. I've conquered Egypt. You've conquered Amalek. And think of this. Go fast forward to Jesus. Jesus basically says in his death and resurrection, he says, I've conquered Satan, sin, and death. Now you go conquer Amalek. The victory's already been had. We're not, we're not doing this in our power, right, or wisdom at all. But the greater victory's already occurred. Now, Jesus said, I've conquered sin, death, Satan, hell, and death. Whatever you think of, it's conquered. Now you go take care of this. That's our responsibility. We're called to that. So hopefully you have a study sheet. Look through this with me just as we close. Guys, in this whole process, if we are anything less than ruthless, we will be ineffective. And that's one of the reasons why these stories strike us, don't they? Because you say, man, God is absolutely ruthless. He said, wipe them all out. But that's the same mentality you and I are supposed to have towards the world, the flesh, and the devil. Take no prisoners. It's, it's kill or be killed. That's the deal. It's life and it's death. So it's not make-believe, it's not a game. Life or death, kill or be killed. Jesus says, I've conquered, now you go out and you take this battle. So, thinking about that, do I give God thanks daily for Jesus conquering sin and death so I don't have to live under that tyranny? Israel never had to live under the tyranny of Amalek. They didn't have to. Because the victory was theirs if they simply walked forward faithfully. Didn't have to. Are we thinking about... We have, in fact, Romans 8 says, right... We are more than conquerors. And even when it looks like you and I are being hammered or Christians are being persecuted, it's that very setting that Paul says we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Through Christ. We need to start our days thinking about this. We're not taking on the world, the flesh, and the devil in our own power. We are more than conquerors through Christ. Am I prayerfully and thoughtfully and consistently choosing to conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil in my life? Not in someone else's, in mine. So do my choices in entertainment provoke affection for the world or Christ? And this, this goes all down. This is why I say, on the application for this, you've got to make these things your own. You know, it's okay for some of us to do one thing that another person shouldn't do. Because for, for some of us, some activity or whatever is encouraging. For somebody else, it's not. We talk about gray issues. or We have to make application for this on our own. You'll know what this looks like. So, am I being drawn towards pride and lust? Well, then I'm, I'm entertaining something I shouldn't. Am I characterized by the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life? That's the world, the effect of the world on me. Or by humility and the fruits of the Spirit. That's the work of Christ in me through the Holy Spirit. Am I feeding my new nature or my old sinful desires in what I do, where I go, and who I go there with? And guys, we do have to, we have to choose our friends carefully. We want to be loving in sharing the gospel with everyone. But you can't afford to make everyone your friend. Because the tendency basically is we become like them, they don't become like us. You've got to choose your friends carefully. Am I in God's Word? Am I praying? And I, am I in fellowship regularly as a means of conquering those sinful tendencies, those sinful ways? It does require being in God's Word. It requires being prayerful. And it requires fellowship with other Christians to be successful in this. Is my life increasingly characterized by freedom from past sinful tendencies? 
Which direction do I see myself going? Now, God may bring up sin. You guys know this. The longer you're a Christian, the more sin you see. You know, if you're a new Christian, you get saved and you feel the weight of, the shoulder, weight of my sins off my shoulders, life is grand. And then days later or weeks later, you see this sin that you didn't even know was there. And it's like, oh, wow, that's discouraging. Well, that happens all your life. It just keep, it's because God keeps showing you. He wouldn't show it to us all at once, would He? Because you'd just fall out. You'd just say, I'm sorry. Just take me now. It'd be too discouraging. So He shows us little by little. Just like He told Israel, you're going to get the land little by little. That's what He does for us, showing us our sin. Am I putting on the whole armor of God? Remember, we talked about this at the end of Ephesians. Ours is a spiritual battle. Amalek is not a person. It's not a place. But it's a power and it's an influence, and we battle against it with spiritual armor. Think again of Ephesians 6. Am I sharing my own story and the Gospel as often as God provides opportunity? This is something we talk about a lot as a church. Are we sharing the hope of the Gospel we have? Are we sharing the story? Are we sharing why Christ is who He said He is? Are we taking advantage of those opportunities? And ultimately, guys, are we ruthless in conquering Amalek, whatever that looks like for us. And again, it will look different for different ones of us. It won't always be the same. But that's the call. It's to be ruthless and it's to have that sense of, I'm taking no prisoners in this. I'm being ruthless. It's interesting, one of the phrases in Deuteronomy is, show no mercy. The God of all mercy says, show no mercy to the people of the land, to the people who will drag you down with them if you don't take care of them. So are we being ruthless because that's the call? Father, would you help us to have your sense of things in this battle that you've commissioned us with? Lord, to refuse to be taken in by the world, the flesh, or the devil. Lord, you've given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You've given us weapons of warfare for the right hand and the left. You've shot our feet with the gospel of peace. Lord Jesus, would you help us to live now in a way that honors you? Would you help us do, Lord, consistently what Israel failed to do we're not better than them we're of the same stuff the dust of this earth but your spirit is in us we have your word and we ask you to help us to put to death the old and to live joyfully reverently lord with humility and worship in the new life you've led us into lord thanks too that a day comes when all this will be behind and with no sin unmitigated vision we see you as you are we long for that day in jesus name amen